This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are here to become better habitat managers. What is up, everybody? Happy Saturday. Hope you all are doing well. It's still blowing and snowing out there. Um, <laughs> tell you what I'm doing today. I'm packing a ton of vitalized seed pre-orders, getting those shipped out the door. So that's what I'll be up to. Um, hope you all had a happy St. Patty's Day and are getting in the woods with your chainsaws, getting ready to open up that canopy this weekend. Be safe if you are. I do have some brand new new. Well, first of all, I need to apologize. I was expecting to bring to you guys the second half, part two, with Jim Ward, Ben Oliverio, and Steve Taylor on our habitat property breakdown. But I left my recorder up at the cabin, and I do not have the actual audio file from that recorder in front of me to get the second half to get to you guys today. So I apologize. I will get that out very soon. But in the meantime, don't worry. I have another great episode for you here. We have our friend Don over at Maple River Farms to talk all things Miscanthus. So there's a lot of, you know, myths out there about Miscanthus. Um, there's a lot of bad information, a lot of good information. Some people like it. Some people hate it because it it's, you know, could be invasive or, or spread or non-native. A lot of things are, are flying around about Miscanthus. So we thought, you know, let's just get the information out there from somebody who's been dealing with it, growing it, selling it, using it for, I think he said 13 years now. Um, so what we're trying to do here is get some information 
for you guys so you guys can make an inform informed decision on if you want to use Gigantus Miscanthus as part of your habitat plan. Lots of good uses for it. Brian and I have both planted it over the years. I've been on some really cool farms. Um, Steve's farm, we we're just talking about with Jim Ward. He's got a bunch of it. Uh, it's very, very solid access, hiding your blinds, etc. And my friend Raleigh in uh, Mississippi, he has a bunch of it too. A very, you know, very good stand of Miscanthus. And man, it's just effective. So we're bringing that to you today. Down at Maple River Farms, all things Miscanthus, you know, how to plant it, what kinds there are. Everything you want to know about Miscanthus is coming today. So it's a great episode, very useful, very informative. Um, so I do have some big news. The Packer Max HD unit, $900 unit, the giveaway is ready, guys. It's finally here. There's a web page that you click on. I should say this. If you either click the link in the show notes below, take you to the giveaway. You can sign up there or habitatpodcast.com, the very top of the page. There'll be a green button, enter giveaway. Either one of those are going to bring you to the giveaway page. We are giving away our biggest giveaway ever for Habitat Podcast to one lucky listener. You know, we want to give back. You guys are the most important thing to the podcast. Um, You know, and and we just want to give back, make a stronger community. Very thankful for for everything that the listenership has provided uh, us in support and you know who better to to partner with than our very first partner at habitat podcast uh, lincoln Rowan at packer max so 900 dollars packer guys we will ship it to you here in a few weeks when the uh when the contest or giveaway is all done and um, we're just thankful so go on over to habitatpodcast.com click the enter giveaway button or scroll down the notes of this podcast and click packer max giveaway and I'll take you right there to sign up. So again, thank you very much for being a supporter of the Habitat Podcast. And we're going to give back a $900 heavy-duty call to Packer from Packer Max. Go sign up. I do have some more news coming down the pike here in the upcoming weeks. There may be another way where you can get additional entries to the giveaway. Um, I'm figuring out how I'm going to roll that out. So more news to come. You know, don't don't worry about that. We got big things coming and I want to include everybody here. And so today, Don Maple River, the Jim Ward Part Two podcast is coming up soon. And you know, in the meantime, I want to thank everybody who's left us a review at Habitat Podcast iTunes. Right. So you can go on iTunes on your on your podcast app, on your Apple phone that you're listening on and leave us a review. Five stars. Write something nice. Takes like. 30 seconds and um i really appreciate that and i'll send you a free decal for doing that so thank you to all who have done that we really do appreciate it guys we have a brand new partner i want to tell you about here today we have partnered up with the folks over at acres acres.co is the official website now acres is an awesome website where you can understand land better so a lot of folks will use this, you know, if you're if you're buying and selling land, if you want to understand different types of soil that are in the land, land values. Um, let me break it down for you here. So acres.co, it's like a mapping software. There's an app on your phone you can get to, but there's a couple different things I want to touch on here. There's a free version. Sign up for free. 
It's awesome. So you can search land data. You can get historic land pictures. Um, and what you can tell from that, are there any potential risks on a piece of property? If you look back, you can see maybe what was farmable ground. Um, you can also get to know land values. You know, it's not like Zillow where there's like an algorithm. This goes off recent properties for sale and sold in your area. So there's a nice toolkit of easy to use features on that website that help you, you know, make more informed decisions if you're looking to buy or sell land, which, you know, I currently am. So I'm always on this website checking things out and trying to evaluate rural land, you know, like, like a pro. So the free version has a bunch of great um, attributes you can use, the map on your phone, et cetera. Now, the premium version at acres.co is built more for land professionals. You know, if we're doing land plans, I tend to look at this because there are things like soil data, crop history, elevation, historic imagery, ownership, uh, parcel ID, all that stuff is built right into acres.co. So with the premium version, which is 30 bucks a month, you can really dive into what type of land we're working on as a land plan client. Uh, you're selling if you're a realtor or broker or buying if you're interested in buying. You can do a bunch of research on a piece before you even show up, waste your time in the truck, going to look at it. So check it out, guys. Brand new partner of the podcast. You're going to be hearing more from Acres. Um, it's, a, it's a great app. It's a great website. You can go right on there, acres.co. I'm on there right now. There's a plat map going on, sold land, listing, insights. You can add shapes, check out Acres. It's just, it's a great new tool that if you're interested in land, like I am, you're working on land, you own land, you want to learn more about the land that you currently have, check it out, acres.co, sign up for their free version. This episode is brought to you by Legendary Forest Products. Guys, if you're in your woods this winter doing some cutting, you're looking around and you just have a lot on your plate, a lot of big mature trees need a forester in there, need a logger in there, call Matt at Legendary Forest Products. Matt's been busy, busy, busy this winter. Um, you know, some podcast folks have reached out, booking appointments. We appreciate you guys doing that. But Matt is opening up the canopy for us. That's what we need, guys. That's what number one rule. And Matt is out there doing it at Legendary Forest Products. He's all over Michigan with his equipment. Um, he's pretty busy. So if you want to, you know, have him out, schedule an appointment, he'll come out. But I would get on it because time is ticking away, right? And he's just going to get busier and busier, especially when the cutting season you know, keeps going on here. Um, check him out. We have a link below. You can check out his Facebook page, Legendary Forest Products. Stand-up guy. We also had him on the podcast before. So if you look up Matt Musselman, Legendary Forest Products on the podcast, you'll get to know Matt through that episode and just realize he's a big, big buck killer, big deer hunter, just like we are. So he's aligned with your goals, right? He knows what you want to do uh, and understands it because he does the same thing on his own property. So check him out, Matt at Legendary Forest Products. All right, let's get to this episode. I want to thank the rest of our sponsors and partners before we kick it off with Donna Maple River. I want to thank Exodus Outdoor Gear, Packer Max Cult of Packers, Morse Nursery, Endless Horizons Archery, First Light, United Country Midwest Lifestyle Properties, and vitalize seed guys here we are with don i'm gonna get to the barn i got a bunch of pre-orders to pack and get shipped so enjoy the rest of your weekend and thanks for listening to the habitat podcast 
All right, everybody, we're back. We have a very special guest today. In addition to Brian Hallbly, the co-host. Don, how are you today? I am doing great for a Monday. Yes. Well, hey, thanks for hopping on here with us. We got Don from Maple River Farms. Don, how do you pronounce your last name? Huncoop. Don Huncoop. Perfect. Yep. Good old Dutch name. Hey, Van Heese over here. So if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. I know. I know. I caught that too. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, thanks for thanks for hopping on here. I met you at a trade show. Oh, I don't know, over a year ago, um, at one of the Michigan ones. Yeah, Grand, Grand Rapids. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I've planted your product. Brian's planted your product. Um, I mean, there's thousands of people I'm sure that have planted your product. But why don't you give us a a background, introduce yourself, tell us, you know, who you are, where you're from, and, and what you do at uh, Maple River Farms. Yeah, um, this is our 11th year uh, as Maple River Farms selling uh, Miscanthus extragantius rhizomes. Um, three years before that, uh, nurturing them, and a year before that, studying and growing a dozen just to understand what, where I wanted to go. And uh, here we are with... Uh, couple thousand customers every year and uh, many many hundreds of thousands of rhizomes shipped all over the world every year uh, mainly in the u.s but we've had some interesting international shipments and uh, mainly for hunting so what else would you like to know i'm, I'm kind of curious on the uh, international shipments what are you finding uses for internationally still still hunting uh, uh no, uh, universities mainly studying for uh, potential biomass usage. Oh. We, uh, yeah, th- this year we've sent uh, multiple shipments to a university in Pakistan uh, to study and, and nursery for biomass. Um, they just don't want to cut down less trees and still have uh, biomass to pelletize for burning. Um, uh, Manila, Philippines, huge order. Uh, Mexico, that took a couple years to do the paperwork, but <laughs> they are, uh, their university is uh, nurturing Miscanthus, uh, again, for biomass more than anything. Um, mainly, predominantly, the world market is looking at it very strongly for, for the biomass. Um, and, and the main reason is uh, the sterility. It's sterile. That is a big deal when you're getting into other countries and they don't want to take over the neighborhood. Sure. Sure. And then we're going to, we're going to, we're going to cover that. I see. Um, and I've heard there's been some rumblings about the, uh, the biomass fuel usage of this product. I mean, it makes sense to me when what's left after, after season, after a winter, um, why not yep. put that to good use? Right. Exactly. I, I, I look forward to a bunch of hunters with their screens someday being asked uh, when it's time to, it's, it's just too much dead stuff. You need to cut it down, clean it up. That somebody wants to purchase the biomass to pelletize or, or they get with their friends and use it themselves. Nice. So. And, and you're in Owasso, Michigan. Is that correct? Correct. Awesome. Correct. Brian, what do you know about Miscanthus? When did you start planting this product? Do you remember, Brian, what year it was? Yeah, I think I've been buying off of Don since they started. Um, at least a decade, if not 11 years that awesome. he's been doing it. 
um yeah had had super success with it and uh i've been impressed by it uh, a lot of my uh friends are kind of nervous about the um non-native and you know any kind of concerns i don't want to say invasive because it hasn't been proven to be invasive but they've got a lot of concerns about that and i'm i'm looking forward to talking to don today and having some of those fears uh relieved for those guys yeah i can definitely help with that maybe we, maybe we should just we should just address the elephant in the room don what do you think exactly um it's it's it keeps coming up and it's kind of surprising uh, granted after 12 or 15 years growing here on the farm nothing has ever grown where i didn't plant it um and all the research i've done with the european studies and this was has been grown um oh 20 plus years ahead of us in europe same issue uh sterility was the whole reason um that they put all this energy into studying this plant and and then planting uh massive hecta acres um and and still not a single issue of it blowing into the neighbor's field and and growing after this much time um, the problem people are mixing up with, so there's 20 varieties of Miscanthus, and Miscanthus exgigantius wow. is one. The 19 other varieties are all viable seed. And the biggest oh, the, the, uh, ornamental grass that's being used that is creating the problem is the Senesis uh, variety because it's it stands exactly six feet tall and it's just great for around houses and that's been going on so long that a bunch of states are picking up on the problem of seeds blowing into other locations and growing and words bad word has gotten out about well the senescence but they they keep forgetting there's multiple varieties you can't lump you just can't use the word miscanthus okay uh so that's that's where the uh, uninformed uh, information is, is flowing, and Senesis is the main culprit, and there's so many nurseries uh, propagating it because there's so many sales available for around uh, houses. Um, I've seen it everywhere, courthouses. It's just used everywhere because it stays short. And, but it's viable seeds, and the plant looks identical. It's just there's a reason I keep calling it Giganteus, <laughs> Miscanthus X Giganteus, um, which, by the way, they did not put an official name on this plant until 2002 in uh, the U.K. Uh, hmm. They had so many nicknames and names for it when it was being studied as a uh, potential biomass crop because of the sterility, but it, they didn't officially put an ex gigantius name on it until 2002. Okay. Um, and, and I stumbled across it in 2008. So, well, what's, what's does interesting? That help? Yes, it, it does, Don. I did not know there were 20 different types of miscanthus until I called you or okay. we talked a week or so ago. Um, nor did I know that, that, you know, all the other miscanthus types have seed heads where this is <laughs> sterile. Like the definition of sterile is. is the, the seeds are non-viable. They are there, but 
they're non-viable. That's just the crossbreeding the plant did in nature. Um, Oh, a long time ago, it wasn't discovered to 1935 uh, um, uh, in um, Yokohama, Japan, and it was brought to uh, Denmark in 1935 and cultivated. And then in the 70s, it made its way into Europe as a biomass uh, potential. Um, they recognized it way back then that this only can be uh, rhizome-divided uh, sterile hybrid. Um, and here we are today. Uh, the unsterilization has just is a, I would call it fear mongering because there's so much track record on Miscanthus giganteus not doing that uh, to this point where the big culprit is obvious if you study um, the decorative grasses. Yeah, and, and that decorative grass looks like it has a, another common name or. Chinese silvergrass. Yep. Japanese. Yep. Uh, Sinesis is most commonly called Chinese silvergrass. Correct. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah, it's for sale all over the internet. I mean. Oh not- yeah, it, it it's viable, and it it's uh, what do you do? I mean, right. I, I mean. Yeah, I can see it's how it's a that huge can- industry. So. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Propagating. So these. These rhizomes i guess explain what a rhizome is for those folks who who don't know and haven't used your product before um Ah. go ahead okay so uh, root division i mean you have roots fine small roots they go down a couple of feet the rhizomes are finger-sized tubers you want to call them that spread outward from the original rhizome cutting that was planted um we try to keep our rhizome size of three to four inches, nothing smaller because there's less growth the first year, which is less winter survivable. Uh, survivability of the first winter is everything. Um, so rhizome, while the plant is growing a stalk upward, the rhizome spread is happening in the ground oh so slowly to that maximum of four inches of width on a mature cluster. It's capable of spreading four inches. Um, and those shoots will then poke up the next spring. You won't see them until the next spring during our short summers here in Michigan. Sure. So, sure. Yeah. Sure. And then that's when you guys will dig them up from your, your current, uh, I don't know what you would call a, a muscanthus, uh, orchard or, or uh, propagation. Yeah, yeah. Crop nursery. Crop yes. Nursery. Okay. And then, and you guys yep. then, split them and, and pack them and ship them. Correct. Yep. Um, obviously we only do this while they're, um, dormant. Um, they, this plant has an interesting feature when the first frost hits it, it actually pulls nutrient in reverse back down the stalk to really give the rhizomes a lot of energy for explosive growth. The next time the ground warms up again, um, which just makes a better product why you'd want to sell them while they're dormant and not let them uh, waste some of that uh, productivity in growing a shoot that might be broken off uh, during processing. And nobody would know that, but you don't get a, a rhizome that's as viable as one that's uh, coming out of dormancy, hence why we only do this while they're dormant. 
and it's a mad dash every uh, seven or eight week window we have every spring. Yeah, that that makes sense. It's kind of relatable to you know bare root trees or 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 along that line where you want to plant them dormant and um, yep. less shock to the system. That whole thing that makes sense to me. Yep. So how do you? This is seasonal business. It sounds like. Um, how do you? get all of these out of the ground and shipped within this such a short window, especially as you guys are growing. I mean, you've been growing and growing every year. It seems like, like yeah, I can hear yeah, you yeah. talk how much <laughs> you have going on at your facility right now. Correct. Uh, I'm up to 30 employees every day that are all going to start on Monday to kick off the season. Um, and the, the machine, my digging machine, I, every year I improve it and build it bigger and better. And, and, uh, without this modified, heavily modified, uh, tulip bulb digger, uh, originally in the seventies, the frame was used to dig t- uh, tulip bulbs in the Netherlands. Um, uh, I can't get them out of the ground in the speed at which I need to, to fulfill orders. Um, so this machine, which I've built, um, the, <laughs> no pictures, no description, because it, it would give away the house. Uh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, that's it's all based on that machine. And then uh, think gold prospecting, twin trommels tumbling slowly, uh, the clusters in clumps, and then a whole bunch of guys lined up with uh, um, water hoses to finish washing. And then those go to a sorting room with this whole line of uh, ladies, uh, elderly ladies, <laughs> um, sorting to size, uh, and, and then a bunch of gentlemen counting and into the bags, and then three shifts of that from uh, 7.30 to 7 p.m. So. Wow. Yeah, that's that's amazing. So you've got a couple of people operating this, I'm assuming, if you got that many people around it and just kind of how are they uh how are they uh working with the machinery i guess without giving too much of your trade secrets away that's again why i built the machine myself i've got pull levers and cords everywhere i literally by myself can fill a truck in 10 minutes um so i'm the only one around the dangerous area um uh that's uh, it's a lot of horsepower a, a lot of uh, hydraulics and um, I, everybody stays safe. Uh, everybody else, I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the equipment operator. I do, I do it all. Um, and, of course, then I'm between digging, I'm running around uh, managing uh, quality and making sure all the equipment uh, is operating, being, again, I built it. Um, right. So, yeah, my season is kind of um, hectic. Uh, and once I survive it, it's... Uh, so easy just fertilize and irrigate and, and uh improve things for the coming year which is happens every year as growth happens um uh, 10 11 years ago yeah in 2012 i still have my first uh, dollar up on the wall um we sold uh yeah it's right there uh yeah took in 17 yeah there it is Sold seventeen hundred rhizomes and took in twelve hundred dollars the first year. That was it. 
<laughs> I know you're doing quite a bit more than that nowadays, for sure. Yep, yep. Uh, unbelievable that I survived the start, which was so, uh, you know, I had to build everything yourself because there's just no money. Uh, drove the truck until I could see the road. Um, yeah, so that's that type of thing until you find that you, every penny has to go back and do growth the next year to, to keep saying, sure, I can fill that order. That's um, great. So it's worked. You just got to do it. And uh, I'm a farmer. So <laughs> so what's the uh, shelf life look like when you get these things out of the ground and clean? Do they, they get shipped up pretty quick or do you store them for a certain amount of time? And if so, how how can people do that once they get them, if they can't get them in the ground? Exactly. Right Great question. Uh, moisture control is absolutely huge because they can dry out. That's number one in the fridge when you keep it at 38 degrees. Um, that's why they're all in individual bags with a scoop of wet biomass to hold moisture. Um, we rack in our fridge, which is huge, to be able to keep stuff uh, from compressing. Uh, and then the goal is to finish digging the first week in May, and then we ship for another four weeks. Uh, refrigeration, we've tested. We can easily keep viable rhizomes uh, for two and a half months, but we've never pushed it. We don't have to push that limit. We, we need people to plant them sooner than later. But they, they, uh, if you keep them the right moisture and the right temperature, you can literally keep them for two and a half months. No problem. Wow. So that's something that somebody can easily do at, at home in their refrigerator if they got enough space that, and, and they can't get Correct. to planting those things. Right. So you're, they're good for a couple of weeks with anybody uh, getting them through shipping with FedEx ground, even though they warmed up in the truck, potentially through movement at FedEx warehouse. But you can slow that growth down by putting them back in a fridge. Don't freeze them, but 38 degrees is, is ideal. Or if you just have a basement and keep them cool, you still slow down the growth. Now, if they push a point and you, you pull them out of the bag with a point, and it's a white shoot, uh, rotate that shoot so it points upward so it doesn't have to turn because they grow away from gravity. And uh, handle them gently. Don't break the point off. So even if you held that bag for six to eight weeks in a refrigerator at home and you had a lot of growth, you just have to handle them gently as you go to plant them in the ground compared to a rhizome that has no growth. You're just throwing it into your hole and throwing dirt over it and stepping on it. Uh, no harm, no foul. But as they grow, you have to handle them more gently. Yeah, I'd, I'd hate to admit it to you, but I've had them where they started growing probably a little bit longer than I should have, but <laughs> got them in the ground gently and they all came up nice and didn't have any problems with them. Right. And what you did was anybody should realize if you see growth, even, a, uh, you know, gently, <laughs> gently, and, and you'll be good. If you rip them out of there and break off too many points, well, some of that vitality has just been lost. And if you have cold, muddy ground, well, it might not want to push another shoot. You, you, so, yeah. So, Don, that, that brings me to a question of mine. Um, what's the most productive way you've seen regular Joes like me plant these things? I did a video on YouTube with my drill and a bit, an auger bit, wow. years ago. And it's actually got quite a few views, actually, um, with your product. And... 
it worked well. It was, I, I bent over too much. I'd probably get a drill bit that's about four foot long instead of a foot long. But, um, yes. you know, what's your, just to save your back, what's, what's your, your best recommendation on that? Or maybe a couple, if you have a couple ideas. Yeah. Okay. So we tried the drill bit uh, with the volume we were planting. Um, we got rid of that real quick because of <laughs> twisted wrists, too many rocks, too many roots and too many kids yes. with the twisted wrists. And the drill bit that has the T-handle on it's too much money. So, uh, and, and we have a rock garden for a farm, so you're just going to deal with that. Um, uh, till. If you can till or disc, uh, really make a, a loose bed and are able to drag a furrow or two at the same time, if you're doing the 18-inch spacing, um, think a couple of... Uh, poles that are two by four screwed across to keep that spacing and then drag it in your freshly tilled path and trying not to compress the dirt with the tire of whatever quad little tractor. So you're dragging where it's fluffy. So that is the fastest way to drag and make two furrows. Then dump your bags of rhizomes into buckets with a string around necks um, and that the reason I say that is tennis elbow, lifting that bucket up to grab one rhizome up and down, up and down bad after a mm. couple hours. So hang it off your neck. So you have two hands free. The hardest part of the job is getting one rhizome in your hand from that stringy mess of, of roots and rhizomes to just walk along, drop, 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 drop. And then somebody else with the rake, just pull the dirt over about two inches of dirt and step on it. The rest of the furrow, ignore. Who cares? That is the fastest way. Because some areas the furrow is too deep, sometimes it's too shallow. But the guy with the rake will know to, to pull over more dirt or pull over less dirt to get the right depth. Hmm. And and what, um, what exactly is making the furrow? The drag itself? Uh, is, there, is there a, is there okay, a well, plane or a shank on there? Yeah, nope, nope. A couple gentlemen were, uh, they had small box scrapers for the little tractor. They just clamped two four by four straight down, 18 inches apart. Nice. Drag that's, away. That's pretty red, redneck engineering. I love it. It's awesome. I, yeah. That's what I do. <laughs> and then <laughs> another way is okay, you have, you have a 100, 150 pound short, stumpy log, four foot long, whatever throw a couple of two by fours on there to space two of them at 18 inches apart and throw a chain on there and drag it so that nose isn't being lifted too high. You want the, the two noses to plow. You'll get enough weight. So it's plowing a fur, two furrows in one shot. Yeah. That's, that's very good advice. Brian, how did you plant yours when you did it? Yeah, I started out with the uh, shovel and uh rake yep. and then once i saved up some money and had a tractor and a tiller i'll tell you that's the way to do it till a it, strip it down is. where you want the border to go and uh yep. i had a couple buddies helping me and everybody just took turns with a you know someone on the rhizome someone on the rake like don was talking about and big difference yep you can do a lot really fast if you plan um especially uh, reminding people before they get the product the rhizomes uh, prep prep your area don't wait till you get them uh, get your layout done and your tilling done and 
get it all prepped. Um, it, it just makes it so much faster and easier. Worst case is you're waiting for a rainstorm to pass and you got to retail, but big deal. Sure. Sure. And, and when you're, after you have these planted and, and maybe we'll cover some, some uses where people put these while we're in the planting part of the discussion, where, where are you finding a lot of people are, are placing miscanthus or maybe it's everybody. I, the biggest use is, is screening uh, r- roads to start with, uh, pathways and roads, too much poaching going on, uh, spotlighting. I, I can't believe how, how much I hear over and over about remote hunting properties people own and other people are going in there with uh, flashlights at night off the road uh, because they have food plots planted there and they're attracting the bucks. Um, so they're, they're screening roads first. And the secondary is access to their property by walking or driving. They make an area they can park that's screened and then a pathway uh, to walk, especially over hills or something to get to their hunting area. Um, try to stay away from corridors because the deer will immediately use those corridors as bedding area. Um, you know, 15, 20 foot corridors. It's a neat idea, but they're just going to love that habitat you just made. So. Okay. And yeah, I think that that all makes sense. And when you're, when you're planning for screening, whether it's road or, or access, you're doing, are you doing two rows? Are you doing four rows? Are you? Oh, okay. Great question. Uh, the minimum we keep saying is the two lines to make one hedgerow. Cause it will take four years to grow together at the 80, 18 inch spacing. You might get full height that third year, but they really don't touch one another until the fourth year. And the dead sticks from year two and three will help that fourth year look like you finally got something. But if you can justify that third line using 200 rhizomes for 100 feet, you'll be a lot happier with thickness faster, more sticks faster. Uh, you'll just be happier. Okay. And, and then that, that tilling, is that also helping them grow faster, grow, grow together quicker because you've, you've killed some of the mate, Correct. killed some of the competition that might be around, you know, grasses yep. or sod or anything like that. It's really for the first year establishment, uh, those fine white roots, the rhizome puts out that first year, they can push out a little farther, a little faster and get a, a better established the first year. Okay. Um, even though doing that, you're disturbing a lot of weed seed and grass seed that you have to fight that it's also kind of choking out, but there are little tricks for that. Um, of course, you can use 2,4-D-based herbicides to knock back weeds because miscanthus is in the grass family, no harm. But I battle foxtail grass, which chokes out my first year. So all I can do is then drive my quad uh, right next to the, the planting to lay down the foxtail so that you have sunlight from one side or the other or both. That's a good tip. Yeah. So the um, if somebody was to hit that with glyphosate, let's say they get it in a spot where they decide to change their mind, does that kill that all the way to the rhizome or will that come back uh, from the rhizome later on? Great question. Um, first year during establishment, even a farmer's drift from his uh, soybean-ready corn or 
uh, Roundup Ready corn or soybean uh, will take out first-year growth. But okay. once it's established, an established miscanthus cluster, four sprays it took me to kill hmm. every 30 days. Let, let it come up a few inches, spray it. Let it 30 days later, spray what tried to grow again. And then that fourth spray at the end of the summer, it was just one or two were trying to grow. And now you've killed all of the energy of the rhizomes in the ground, and then you can then till it up that next year for whatever. But if you think about dividing and conquering uh, by tilling, uh, you still have a couple of sprays at a minimum because the rhizomes will take weeks to poke back out that you just turned over deeper. Um, So... The easiest way to kill an established row is just let it grow up a little bit, spray it, and then do it again on whatever new growth tries to push again, and then twice more to guarantee you've got everything killed. Okay. So you don't recommend uh, if if somebody's doing like a uh, controlled burn to try to burn off and start over, I'm assuming those will come back up since the rhizomes are safe under the ground perfectly healthy a, a, a lot of people uh, control burn uh, the miscanthus every five or six years to get that dead mass out of the way uh, i strongly suggest uh, using a sickle bar to lay it down and burning it people who burn it standing up are in for a huge fast good point. fire <laughs> lay it down lay it down i have a few people who have burn burn parties every couple of years invite <laughs> their friends over and then say here watch this um <laughs> it's fast it's hot it'll burn pine trees 100 feet away or singe them so wow yeah burning doesn't do anything other than clean it up and give it uh fresh air so. okay so we've we've got the competition kept away um how are we maintaining this once it gets to height what's the what's the best way to you know keep keep the sun on it and and keep it growing healthy yeah. A triple fertilizer every every spring, and then at least every other year hit it with uh, also uh, urea, a straight forty six zero zero. You will have better results. Um, I do it for for nursing. You get more rhizome production in the ground, which of course more rhizome production in the ground means more sticks, stalks coming up also, so more thickness. Um, Nitrogen, loves nitrogen, but you have to have a balanced soil. Uh, Really pay attention to the pH. It will grow from 5.5 to 7.5, but 6.5 is the wheelhouse. And uh, my poor growth areas on the farm here are high pH of all things. I'm battling 8.2, 8.7. It's more of a pain to bring it down using ammonium sulfate, but... I can get it down and and the growth explodes again. So uh, pH is kind of a big deal. It it just was simple not pull nutrients if your pH is out of whack. You wonder why the growth is poor. And I fertilize it, I fertilize it. Well, that's why. Now, are you using granular fertilizer and just kind of side-dressing it? Yep. Yep. Again, buck around the neck and uh, sling it. Now, how about uh, other maintenance tips? Are you keeping it mowed down the rows of that uh, on each oh. side? Or? 
you don't have to. Um, the second year growth will outpace the weeds in the grass, so you're kind of it's self-maintaining. No more chemicals to use. Just the first year, make sure it doesn't get choked out. But um, the dead sticks stalks will stand for four to five years before they rot off at ground level and tilt. Of course, they're going to tilt and touch the other three or four years of dead sticks preceding it and any new growth. So you won't really see the tilting. But by that time, there's so much dead litter and dead sticks. Any new shoot trying to photosynthesize in the middle of a hedgerow just can't get sunlight. So it quits trying and you end up with only new growth on the outside. So you do have to do a burn down or a cut down oh, from original planning, seven or eight years, but maybe a five or six year rotation. You have a healthier uh, hedgerow if you, if you try to remember to do that every five or six. You don't have to, but it would be healthier if you did. Okay. And when you're, that, that's a great, that's a great example. I think that's a, a great tip that I I haven't heard before. Um, oh, and, and you said that when back to the fertilizer real quick, a triple, what, 13, triple 19, something like that. Yeah. Triple 19. If you can get your hands on it, we had shrinkflation last year where I can only get triple 18. Yeah. Well, but, yeah, we can just go on and on about that and glyphosate and everything else yeah. crazy through the moon. <laughs> Don, what about uh, site selection? Are there any spots where you would, not recommend putting this like uh areas that may be a little wetter or a little drier or yes you thanks for bringing that up anything is remotely cat tailish uh ground vibration of water for half the year um it's too wet if you could plant right on the edge of that oh miscanthus is spectacular because the rhizomes inhibit six inches and and they've got to have dry feet they can be underwater a little bit during spring runoff, but okay. it's got to dry up. It, it just has to. Um, they'll rot out in, in just too many months of cold water. Um, the vice versa is hillsides. Too many people want to try uh, hillsides. and this To have explosive growth, you've got to have water in the ground, and, and hillsides shed too easily. Um, they tend to not do well on steeper berms. Um, if you're going to do the side of a berm, you should at least cup your planting area to retain and catch moisture um, to help it out. Or if you're lucky enough, staple down a drip line and you're within a water source. If you want to, uh, you're hard pressed, you have to plant on the side of a berm. That's another good tip. I, I, here's a question: when you're when you get this grown up and established, and you're maintaining it correctly, fertilizing, um, how fast is it propagating underground in terms of distance? How long will it take to widen that hedgerow by six inches on each side, so a foot total, for instance? It, it's it, it it. I just in sandy loam, you might get a little over the four inches. And in heavy clay, you're definitely going to get under the four inches of spread every year. Um, that's why we keep saying the average is four inches. Miscanthus um, does do a little better in consistent growth in sandy loam. 
then clay. Um, oh, how do you say it? Uh, clay c- can be too dry or too wet too easily, and you get different years, uh, non-consistent growth every year. Where in, in the sandy loams, it's just way more consistent results, the same thing virtually every year. Um, timely rain is a huge deal uh, in the heavier soils. How about uh, predation? Are there any animals that eat this stuff, chew on it, make make your life miserable? Insects? I have seen nothing on insects. Uh, the only uh, issue are on first-year growth. Um, we've had a lot of reports of, of ground trucks or rabbits, um, even deer, pulling up a whole line of uh, brand-new planted um, uh, rhizomes because sad to say on that first year there's not a big enough root system to keep it in the ground so a shoot sticking out one or two inches one animal can do a lot of damage in one night and you won't know they're all laying on top of the ground drying out in the sun and you got nothing um mm. whereas if they eat a shoot of something established big deal it's going to push keep pushing sure uh, so yeah. c- cayenne pepper cayenne pepper if you have a lot of rabbits and whatnot, uh, I suggest a little cayenne pepper sprinkled around to keep them uh, off of your new shoots for at least a few weeks to let roots grip to keep them in the ground. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I haven't experienced any of that. And uh, I hear people talking about turkeys pulling up tubers from different plants and everything, but I think... Those rhizomes would be a little too big for those things to be uh, keying in on. Yeah, it's it's more of they fixate on that new shoot coming up that looks different, something new, and the animals want to taste it and, and try it out. So, okay, is there any type of uh, longevity, life expectancy on these, or is it um, pretty much eternal? <sighs> pretty much eternal. Why people keep bringing up the 15-year lifespan is because of the biomass um, information about a field will lose its productivity at at 15 years. When you plant a one-meter grid of rhizomes, you'll hit peak tonnage um, up to that 15th year, and then the tonnage will start going downhill because the field has choked itself out. Not because it's dying. There's no new room to have a lot of shoots huh. grow up. So your, okay. your shoot stocks per square foot goes downhill. Therefore that your tonnage goes downhill and that's why you planted it. Um, their neat uh, solution was to rototill a checkerboard pattern through an older field after they cut off the biomass and let the blocks continue to grow. So they got some biomass the next year, but they could spread into the newly tilled checkerboard and then wait, a number of years before they decided to till those uh, blocks they left. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't think most of our listeners, I think, are probably doing mostly what Jared and I are doing with them as far as borders and screening. And I don't know if they'll Correct. ever have that issue, but that's I was I was uh, yeah. wondering about that if it if it had gotten too choked out and and how you could remedy that. That's that's really yeah. Interesting. So. On your hedgerow, 30 years from now, you'll be pushing 10 feet wider on one side. Wow. Okay. 
just something to think about. Um, you can easily, one of those years you burn it down or cut it down, rototill back an offending direction. Um, what tries to grow back, well, you spray, 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 and kill it. And you just yanked it back five, six feet. Um, uh, interesting article out of Europe, their hedgerow was, oh, too wide. For, so when they, they burned it all down, they just rototilled down the center of it and let it grow back in toward itself. And then their plan was to, when it was nice and healthy and thick again on the interior, they'd take off the outside edges and they've repositioned it in the same area and kept it in that area. So literally all you have to do is just till or spray if it's if it's moving outside of uh, your not directed area. Think about uh, spraying without tilling you're killing the whole thing. So ah I see. Uh, okay. Right, they're interconnected. You can't just think you're going to glide uh, 2 feet and kill it. Gotcha. It's pulling the energy from four feet over. So, no, you have to cut that off, and, and rototilling an edge off is the easiest way to cut it off, and then either keep mowing the little guys that try to regrow or spray them. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Good to know. Now, circling back to Europe, you're talking about some of the things that they've been doing over there. Did you say that they brought it there about 70 years ago? Or... Yeah, in, in a nutshell, uh, in 1935, it was brought from uh, Yokohama, Japan, uh, to Denmark, where it was cultivated by a gentleman called Carl Forrester. Um, he was the, very interested in it, and because of his diligence and, and writing about it, it, it was, well, the, the sterility was really concentrated on and in the 70s they started bringing it um into europe as a biomass potential crop okay. um it's been studied heavily uh since 1983 under two different eu programs um and that's kind of where we're at right now as of this day there's about 50,000 acres under cultivation in the eu um Great Britain has maybe 20,000 acres itself. Um, and that's why I've read a lot of these articles. And no, nobody ever was saying it, it grew where they didn't plant it. Yeah, that's, that's it, what it, I'm getting at. If we, could, if we could point some of our listeners to some of that uh, information, if they've got it somewhere online, I'm sure they do. Oh, they do. Just, just Google it. Uh, it's all there. Um, it wasn't until 2002 that the in the UK uh, they finally put a name on it of Miscanthus extraganteus. It was called so many different things before that. They just didn't know what to call it, the, the uh, variety. And they finally put a rock-solid name on it because, it, it. well, by 2002 it had a pretty good track record as a biomass crop, and there's too many names. So they finally designated Giganteus extraganteus. Yeah. Um, in the U.S., our Department of Energy uh, went after switchgrass as the official biomass crop, um, sad to say, <laughs> until the University of uh, Illinois did massive studies on it. 
for, oh man, four, four or five years from 2004 to 2008, where they showed that it outproduced switchgrass as a biomass crop. So I got all my information when I was studying it in 2007 and 8 from articles uh, uh, from the University of Illinois, which led me to more articles in Europe. Um, mm. And I ended up buying the Illinois clone, it's called. Uh, uh, let me uh, backtrack just a s- There are 1,513 genotypes of the 20 varieties of Miscanthus. Wow. And a, a genotype is just where they've put a separate name on it because they saw different traits in that variety that they wanted to name independently. So the, the Miscanthus extraganteus clone that you guys have grown is the Illinois strain. Okay. Uh, I, that the University of Illinois propagated and put their name on and sold it to a farm in Ontario where I purchased a large amount from in 2007, which uh, was a nightmare to get across the border. I got all the proper paperwork, (laughs) but it still took me four hours sitting there and they didn't know what to do with me (laughs) with a truckload of rhizomes. Um, That was an adventure, but I had the proper paperwork and, uh, and I've been propagating the Illinois clone ever since. Um, been considering uh, having a genotype myself, but after reading some recent articles, uh, it hasn't diverged uh, hmm. enough in this short period of time. I've had it 12 years on the farm to justify the expense and put a separate name on it. Sure. So does that help with a little history? Absolutely. Appreciate that. So. Don, I have I have one more question kind of on that. Is there any any thoughts or, or chance on it recrossing with something else out there? Or is that not possible because it's sterile? Uh, because it's sterile. You nailed it. I, I've tried to read articles about unsterilizing, and I just cannot find them. It, it usually has human intervention. So... But nature did make a sterile product. I give it credit for that. Uh, that was a cross-pollination. Yeah. Um, a lot harder to do when there's the seeds are not viable. Right. Okay. So, hence why I've been looking. I have been looking, and just nobody uh, in all the years of growing, and I have 12 years under my belt of looking, or more than 12 years, and nothing has grown where it, I didn't plant it. And I've got 20 plus acres. And when it's um, full of seed head in the fall and blowing in the wind, it's pretty uh, awesome. Oh, I bet that looks, but, looks amazing. And nobody's ever like thrown a cigarette out the window or anything near your 20 acres, right? That's why we have beautiful landscape berms on the road. And the Wisconsin <laughs> is way far away from the road. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, it would be an incredible um, burn. Um, but I have divided the fields up, um, for irrigation purposes, every 60 foot, um, our, uh, big old hose reel will blow a 120 foot path. So of course I'm irrigating during, during the heat of summer to make sure I get maximum, uh, production. Very cool. Yeah. Well, that's, that's about all I had Don, on, on the Miscanthus extraganthus. Um, do you want to 
Is there anything that I missed? Otherwise, I have a couple rapid fire questions for you, and then we'll let you um, plug your business and all that before we wrap. I, you've really hit the high points. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I can't think of anything else. And Brian, how about you, my friend? No, I just appreciate Don taking time to come on and explain all that for us. And, uh, you know, hopefully moving forward, we could, uh, alleviate some of the fears out there and cause it's a great product. I mean, it's, I mean, we've tried so many things over the years to screen and it, there's just nothing to compare it to. And, and to, yeah. to have that confidence in it, that it's sterile and uh, that it works, it's just, it's a great tool. There's nothing like it. Yeah. On that note, you just hit upon something I keep forgetting to bring up. The wildlife has exploded on our farm. Of course, we don't cut down everything. I don't want to. Our, our pheasants came back rabbits everywhere uh, we never shoot the coyotes they've always been a problem well, now there's more coyotes but there's so much meat animal uh the wildlife just exploded uh, hawks i mean it's it's incredible uh even though you wouldn't plant a thousand acre field of miscanthus and expect wildlife to explode it's it choke itself out and be useless uh, but when you have hedgerows and blocks of it, uh, what a great place for small game, uh, small animals to hide and, and uh, propagate. And uh, a lot more predators all of a sudden, everything, just wildlife everywhere. So thank you for great. saying that, Brian. So. Yeah, great, great point. I'm glad you, glad you brought that up. I mean, you wouldn't want to plant a thousand acre monoculture of anything really right mother nature doesn't nope. really do that so why would this be any different or, or switchgrass or corn all, all the fields of corn and soybean around us is bad enough mm-hmm. uh, as far as monoculture but sure. that's a food crop so you, you can't complain about that right so, <laughs> well that's awesome don i have a quick series of questions a little you know one to two second answer for each very simple stuff if you're ready i'm going to hit you with them hit hit me what is your favorite beverage? Huh. Iced tea. Favorite venison or wild game recipe if you have one? Don't have one. I don't hunt. Okay. Well, then we're going to negate a couple of these questions here. Um, <laughs> what's your favorite tool you have on the Miscanthus farm at Maple River? Your favorite tool you're out working with, Habitat or, or Miscanthus related? My welding machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine pulling all these. If I if we're in a, a master at this welding, I couldn't have built all this stuff. So, yep. mm. Wow. And okay, well, if you don't hunt, what's your favorite hobby? Gold prospecting. Really? I'm good at it. That's a whole other. Uh, oh, we could talk. That's interesting. <laughs> that is. Yeah, panning very for gold. I. I in another life, years ago, I had my own line of uh, mining equipment. Wow. Wow. Yep. A lot of history in, in gold prospecting. So, Why do you think my wash operation looks like a, it's right out of Alaska? Yeah, yeah. I can see how that <laughs> could be. You made the dredge reference before, yep. Yeah. Yep. All right, yep. Last, last but not least, Don, your favorite tree. Do you have a favorite tree type that you like? <laughs> Shiny leaf yellowhorn. That's that's a first. Mm, yeah, that's you'd have to Google that. I'm going to. Yep. Shiny leaf yellowhorn. You will be amazed. What a tree it is. 
Hmm. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate you taking the time out of your extremely busy schedule. Um, that was very, very uh, informative and great discussion. Now, if anybody wants to find you and, and support Maple River, how can they do that? Where can they come buy your product? Yeah, it's pretty easy. Maple River Farms with S.com. Um, my contact information is on there. And, of course, I post on Instagram and uh, Facebook um, with photos of what, what, what I'm doing on the farm. Yes, yeah, so if anybody wants to That's, come see kind of behind the scenes, they can do that. Yes, I, I love when people stop by and pick up the product. And uh, even off-season, I've showed many people around the farm to uh, get a better feel of what first-year growth, second-year growth, third-year, what to expect. It just is a nice way to take a break and, and show interested people around the farm. So, yep. Awesome, Don. Well, hey, thank you so much once again for, for hopping on here, and uh, we really do appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for asking. It's just, it's, I just don't do this stuff, so thank you very much. Thanks, Don. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, habitatpodcast.com, we have our Habitat property consultation services on there under the land plan tab. Check out our HP land plans there. We also have hats, t-shirts, and decals up at habitatpodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, You know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. I'd like to thank Vitalize Seed Company at vitalizeseed.com. Packer Max Cultipackers. Exodus Trail Cameras. Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. Endless Horizons Archery. Morse nursery first light legendary forest products acres.co united country midwest lifestyle properties thank you so much guys for tuning in once again get back with us soon we're gonna have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers <laughs> <laughs>